You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And this morning we're going to be in Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. The end of chapter 18 in Luke's Gospel. Starting in verse 31 of chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what, the, what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, of, or in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Uh, Father, uh, just ask that you would open our eyes to this text, to the truths that come from your word, which is sufficient, perfectly sufficient for life and godliness, for everything we need. Father, I pray that we would learn from the disciples dullness of heart and from the surety of your spoken words that we would anchor our lives by faith in them. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, you would do this work in Christ's name. Amen. To begin with, I just have a few questions uh, for you to consider. Do you ever need a reviving of the soul? Do you ever feel like where you're bogged down, <laughs> losing hope, maybe losing purpose? Do you ever feel like you're lacking wisdom? You don't know what to do. Do you ever feel like joy in your heart is languishing? Or are you ever confused about the circumstances of your life and what you ought to do? Do you ever see that you tend to have a lack of reverence 
for the Lord so that guilt is building up in your conscience. Do you ever wish there was someone to give you truth that would cut through all the lies in our world? Do you ever find yourselves being blind to hidden sins that you know must be there? Or do you ever find yourself in presumptuous sins, hard-hearted, rebellious sins that you know are sins and you know it's wrong and you do it anyway? My assumption is you are like me and you can relate to all of that. And Psalm 19.7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Why do we do biblical counseling and not integrated Christian counseling, which combines scripture and psychology? One of our responses is the law of the Lord is perfect. You can't do better than perfect. And almost no one comes for counseling that doesn't need reviving of the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Who needs wisdom? God's word is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You struggling with depression? It's the precepts of the Lord that rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, cutting through the confusion, helping expose the darkness inside of us. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I love that there's a promise that God will be reverenced for all times. And that is right and that is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You want to go somewhere where it's rock solid truth, period? You need to go to the scriptures. And then he, in verse 10, the psalmist says, more to be de desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs and declare me innocent from hidden faults? <coughs> Who's going to help you see your, your hidden sins? But it's the scripture that lays us bare. And then it and then he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, high-handed sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Are you sick of those types of sins having dominion over you? It is God's word that you need. That's when the Spirit gives you supernatural power. 
And if the word of God is all those things, then this should be easy. (laughs) Sign me up. That's all that I need. Just give it to me and I'll believe it. And I want it. And I want all of it. But that is not our experience. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Why does he need to pray for us? Who doesn't want the best? Who doesn't want the drippings of honey from the honeycomb? You might think, lay God's word out, everyone comes running to it. Everyone wants it. It's what we're made for. It's what we need. It's where we come in contact with God himself. And yet, we are often like the disciples, slow of heart to believe all that is written in the scriptures. Why is it so easy to pick up a magazine and just read? Or read a sports article or read something for work and then I know I should read God's Word, but I put it off and I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. How do we explain that? Let's take like a flyover of our text real quickly before we jump in and zoom in and see what Luke is highlighting for us. In verse 31, he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, underline that, See, behold, take notice. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about me, about the Son of Man by the prophets, will be accomplished. The word accomplished carries with it, there's a mission. We're going to Jerusalem. Everything written about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. Is that clear? He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Are those specifics, and are those specifics understandable? The answer is, yes. He's not speaking code language. And after flogging him, incredible detail here, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. It's not maybe this will happen. It's not this is a threat this this will happen. There's a mission that's going to be accomplished. These specific things are going to happen. And we read in verse 34, and Luke wants us to know three times over this. But they understood none of these things. Well, Jesus has to be more clear. No, he was really clear. Look at what he highlights next. This saying was hidden from them. (laughs) They weren't able to find the saying. 
They weren't able to grab onto it. And they did not grasp what was said. And we should ask the question, well then, what's the problem? If Jesus spoke crystal clear, and yet they missed it, and this is the eighth time in Luke he's talked about this, what's the problem? And the question you should ask is, can I struggle with whatever they're struggling with? And the answer is, yes, you can. And yes, you do. And yes, you do miss a lot in the scripture. And then we read this. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd go by. He inquired what is meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth, the one normal person from Nazareth. <laughs> They're highlighting his humanity there. That's what the crowd said to him. And in verse 38, he cried out a different title, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <laughs> Jesus, the waited for Messiah, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Don't talk. He's ruining the moment. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when they came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, they gave praise to God. Now, let's just think about where we've been in Luke. The tax collector cries out the same thing. Have mercy on me. And we're shocked that the tax collector went home justified and not the religious Pharisee. Revealing that those in Jesus' day didn't know who God was and what he loved. They didn't know what he was like. And then parents start bringing their children, even infants, to Jesus. And the disciples look at this and say, stop. And Jesus rebukes them after they rebuked the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. And once again, we see they didn't know what God loved. They didn't know what God was like. They didn't know who was getting into the kingdom of heaven. Certainly it wasn't going to be infants or children that could stack up nothing to offer God. And then you have the rich young ruler who in those days, if you were rich, it was assured that God had given you favor. That's why you were rich. And we see the rich young ruler walk away sad and Jesus saying, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter 
the kingdom of God. And once again, you have the disciples who are with Jesus every day, blind to the main function of Jesus's earthly ministry that he's been talking about. They know he's the Christ. Remember when Peter said that? And then right after that, Jesus says he's going to go to the cross and die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And then he says, Satan, get behind me. Peter couldn't handle the cross. He couldn't handle the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah leave. He wanted to build a tent for them. It had to go his way. He had preconceived ideas about what God ought to do and should do. So much so that God spoke out of heaven and said, this is my son. In a sense, Peter, shut up. Listen to him. Listen to his words. And here we have a blind man who sees. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people who see that are saying, shut up, are blind. Not seen spiritually. And so one of my questions is, is when you come to the word of God, do you come to the word of God humbly? Meaning, you'll go wherever God's word takes you. You won't skip over the parts that challenge you. You won't skip over the parts that help the other political party in some way. Do you come to the scripture and are you willing to go where it takes you even if your friend group isn't going there? Nobody could go with the suffering Messiah. The Jews stumbled over it. No way could this be. The disciples are stumbling over it. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. And yet, what Scott read, Isaiah 52 and 53, was that clear enough? Was that detailed enough? Psalm 22, they're casting lots for his clothing. He, Isaiah 53, he's pierced for our transgressions. The details of the crucifixion, they're in the scripture. And yet, knowing the Old Testament and Jesus' clear words, they couldn't connect the dots. And we're going to consider why that might be. The charge of this sermon is see Jesus, behold him, see him in all his glory in the scriptures, and believe. And I want to ask two questions. Do I believe that which is hard to believe in the scriptures? What and then can ask this question, what causes my heart to be slow to believe? And the reason why we don't just all line up and drink down and eat the Word of God as though it's like honey is because of sin. 
You see, we're not merely intellectual beings. Do you realize God made the world and all of God's words are true? And yet the scripture is hard to believe because of sin. It's not mainly an intellectual problem. Christians are still putting to death this old nature that's hanging on. And so we find ourselves slow to believe just like the disciples. It's because of sin. Sometimes people speak of sin like this. Three root sins are pride, selfishness, and unbelief. And what most people mean when they say root sins is they say find a sin that isn't rooted down at the base with those three things. If you sin, you're not believing God's word, even the word of God written on your conscience. There's pride in all of our sin, going our own way, disregarding God, and there's selfishness. Sin is always selfish. In our pride, we believe our Intuition is usually right, even though the scripture says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. But isn't it true? Are you like me? Is your default that your intuition is right and it's always the Holy Spirit leading you and you just know? In our pride, we can believe we don't have any blind spots that we see clearly. The first thing I seek to convince whoever I'm counseling is that they have blind spots like everyone else in the world. Because that's what sin does. It blinds our eyes. And while you might say, yes, it does, my question is, is do you believe it does you though? Your spouse knows how you're blind to it. But do you see it? Do you know it? Do you see the word of God is yes? These hidden areas are going to be exposed in my life. In our pride, we believe that our interpretation has to land with people that matter to us most. In Paul's day, there were those who were with Apollos and those who were with Paul and there were those who were with Cephas. And what you had to do is interpret the scriptures in a way that you landed with your guys. I can struggle with that. Can you? When we do, it harms our understanding of the word of God. In our pride, we often ignore or twist texts that might be helpful for opposing whatever other side there is out there. Whether it's political views, whether it's theological views, we often fear rejection from our group of people 
more than we fear and tremble before the Word of God. And so if you can think of this sermon as like a strength coach or a fitness coach that tries to encourage and challenge his clients to become more fit and more strong, I want to be a fitness coach that helps you lift what you haven't been lifting and humble yourself in ways that you come to the Word of God realizing what it is and how valuable it is for your life and you quit doing the easy, prideful thing. Or, or it might be selfishness. If we're honest, we want what we want, and I don't want to believe what challenges me or exposes me. That's hard for you, and that's hard for me. Someone speaks or shares truth from it with me from God's Word. It's really easy for me to want to change the subject and show how that person maybe is a hypocrite in some area, which is just doing what? Running from the Word of God and only believing what I want to hear. Often, we don't believe or understand because of our laziness when it comes to studying and meditating on God's Word. Everything good in this world that God gives us comes with effort Faith is hard. That's why Paul called it a fight of faith. Do you think in, do you think you just open up your Bible and it just goes <laughs> knowledge downloaded, sanctification secured, you're holy now, old man is dead, good to go. That's not how it happens. And in our selfishness, we're often lazy. And so we fail to believe what God's Word says because maybe we don't know what it says. It's easier just to believe what that guy said and that guy said and that guy said, so I'm not going to go with that view because I think I'm with those guys. Yeah, but have you read the text? Are you convinced by the Word of God? Is that why you believe what you believe? So as we come to this text... and dive into it, I want us to be thinking about those two questions. Do I believe that which is hard to believe in the Scriptures? And when I don't, what causes my heart to be slow to believe? And that saying, slow to believe, we're going to see in Luke 24 in a moment. So let's jump into verse 31. And from my calculation, this is the the eighth time Jesus has pointed to his death. Two other times he was just crystal clear, or really clear. This time he's the most clear. I'll just give these to you fast. Luke 5.35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You hear those words, will come come it will be accomplished Luke 9:22 says 
Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That was really clear. Notice, must suffer. Scripture must be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He didn't say, which road should we take? Ah, flip a coin, let's go over here. He set his face. He knew he was going to be taken up in the resurrection, but in order for there to be a resurrection, there needs to be a crucifixion. Liberal theologians of the past who said Jesus was kind of a religious fanatic that took it too far and got himself killed. Well, you don't find that in the scripture. What you see in the Old Testament is that God predicted really specifically the death of Christ. And you see Jesus knowing exactly where he's going, telling his disciples exactly what he's going to do. In fact, in Luke 12, 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And that baptism was his death, dying under the wrath of God, as going under the water represents Christ's death under the wrath of God in your behalf. You're identified with him in baptism. And once again, underline the words, until it is accomplished. This is a mission. And then in Luke 13, 32, the Pharisees come to him and say, you better get out of here. You're going to die. Herod's going to kill you. Jesus said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow. And uh, today and tomorrow and and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. <laughs> I'm a prophet. They kill all the prophets in Jerusalem. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, Jesus says. I'm not going to be afraid. I know I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And then in Luke 17, 24, he says, speaking of the second coming, he says, for as the light flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so when we come to verse 31, it's not as though Christ has been cryptic. He's been saying this. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. See, see it. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Will be accomplished is a divine passive, meaning God's going to accomplish this work. God is going to do the plan that God had set in place. Because before there was ever earth, there was a book in heaven with names written in it. And that book was called the book of the Lamb who would be slain. God didn't create Adam and Eve and say, whoops, what are we going to do now? God is accomplishing His plan. 
Everything written about the Son of God by the prophets will be accomplished. The whole Testament is about Christ. In John 5.39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. You can't separate the Scriptures from Christ because they're pointing to Christ. In Acts 3.18, Luke says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer and or would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then in verse 32, it says, for he will be delivered over. It's debated whether this is also a divine passive or if this is the Jews delivering Jesus over to the Gentiles. But I think the answer, and in, in most interpreters think the answer is both. You can't separate it. This is God's plan, and this was the Jews' plan. If you were to look at Acts 2.22, you see this crystal clear. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it was his plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God's plan was being accomplished and their plan to kill him was being accomplished. And here you have God's divine sovereignty and man's real will being compatible with one another so that those who killed Jesus are going to be punished for it unless they turn to Christ. And all at the same time, both the devil and all those who are his children are working to fulfill God's perfect plan. And so when we read that he'll be delivered over, I think it's both and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. We see all this fulfilled in the Gospels. In Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody and were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy who struck you. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming. And then in Luke 23, 11, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. In Mark 14, 65, we read, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Mark 15, 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I just got to point out here, Pilate is being motivated by being accepted by the crowd. Pilate will make Jesus suffer for his own benefit, but Jesus is suffering so that others may benefit. You, they couldn't be more different. Pilate could be understand by the people of his day. People would say, I understand why he did what he did. No one, even Pilate was scratching his head when Jesus wouldn't answer all these attacks against him. Who is this? 
He speaks of a kingdom that is not of this world. If it was of this world, his soldiers would be fighting. And so the Jews stumbled over these things. The disciples stumbled over these things. Verse 33, after flogging him, if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, (laughs) I know that's only four words in verse 33, but in those four words is a lot of turning your face away from the TV when you see what the Romans did when they flogged him and they will kill him and on the third day he will raise. Now I'm just telling you, you know that you and I know that we have a whole lot of flesh that when we hear Jesus say this, if we're honest, we only see the bad things. (laughs) And we don't see that those last few words there and on the third day he will rise. Is there reason for them to say, absolutely not, I will not believe, no way? I, it just didn't fit. They believed he was the Christ. They believed he was the Messiah. But they had thought so long about the Messiah and what he would be like and how he would rule, and they couldn't get out of their mind how he's going to destroy the enemies of Israel. And so when Jesus says he's going to go be destroyed by them and be treated bad, they could not fathom it. They had Psalm 2 in their mind. They had this in their mind. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers of the age take counsel together against the Lord and the Lord's anointed, his Messiah. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs at these enemies. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king in Zion on my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And they all say, yeah, that's the Messiah. That's our king. That's what he's coming to do. That's why we're excited when he shows up. So when Jesus says this, they could not believe it Not because he wasn't speaking crystal clear. It's because they thought God was like them. They couldn't imagine God conquering through suffering and dying. And then being raised again. Before you think they're crazy, you would have stumbled over it too. And it wasn't that it wasn't there in the Old Testament. Scott read Isaiah 52 and 53. The problem is, is when they read Isaiah, 
They also read Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this and that's their Messiah. And then you get this servant, these four servant songs in Isaiah, and they must have thought this has to be someone other than the Messiah. It has to be two people. It can't be the same one. And you might be thinking, well, then no big deal that they didn't believe. Maybe even God hid it from them. Maybe it's no big deal that they didn't see these things in the scripture. That's actually not Jesus' take on it. Turn with me as we close to Luke 24. And as we read this, I want you to ask the question, <laughs> are the disciples, are the women... Are those on the, the two on the road to Emmaus, did they have ample information? Here's what we read. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb and taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That's weird, right? First clue. But when... They went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's weird. In chapter 18, he said he's going to die, and on the third day, be raised. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That's weird. And as they were frightened and bowed their, bowed their faces to the ground. The meds, men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? So the dazzling white guys from God say that Jesus, who you think is dead, is alive. That's weird. He is not here, but he is risen. That's clear. Now remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? That's clear. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles but these things seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Not enough evidence on the table, evidently. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, use your, think about this as we, as we read this. And they stood still looking sad. One of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered them, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women from our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. So let's just stop there. Okay, guys, why are you so sad? Well, Jesus, who performed all these miracles, who was a prophet of God, died just as he kind of said he would, and then he evidently raised, angels told our women that, and then the apostles, they went and confirmed it, but yeah, it's all lost now. It's amazing, isn't it? And what does Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish ones. See that? And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And if we're honest, we struggle to believe. John MacArthur wrote a book called Hard to Believe. How stubborn are our hearts. Even when our minds know, our hearts will often go with lies because our flesh is attached to them. But God is a God who the outcast in society, the blind man, who no one cares about, maybe the most important man of the day, Jesus is walking by. This guy's ruining it. He's screaming out. What's going on? It's Jesus Nazareth from Galilee and the blind man who God had opened his eyes to see and believe obviously confessed him as the Messiah and he saw and so I see all of chapter 18 as Luke helping us see a God that is different than the way we would conceive him we would conceive that God would accept the good ones, the mighty ones, the religious ones. And yet it's the tax collectors, the infants, the widows going to get justice at the beginning of Luke 18. The rich man is sad walking away from Christ. So let's learn Let's ask God to give us strength in the spirit 
to believe all that the scripture has spoken to us. Because when you lean into the word of God, when you're like a tree planted next to streams, even when the tough day comes, fruit, rejoicing of the heart can be there when we're rooted in God's word. Father, I thank you for your mercy and grace that you and patience that you showed the disciples. Father, I thank you for the mercy and grace and patience you show us as we're slow of heart to believe. Father, I thank you that you don't tell us to take a leap into the dark, but you predicted down to the detail the work of Christ in our salvation before it ever happened. Beginning in the book of Genesis, Father, when we doubt, it's not because your word is unclear, but it's because of our sin. And so, Lord, give us the spiritual strength to kill sin, to come to your word, to be enlightened by the Spirit in your word. Help us come to your word humbly, Lord, not just to win arguments and be on the right team, but humbly to be exposed so that we might then Flee to Christ and be clothed. Lord, I pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.